The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you're free how you doing happy friday tgif and i'm very grateful and thankful for our guest uh today mr tom conway president conway is president of the united steel workers union the usw they are north america's largest industrial union they have 1.2 million members with an m and retirees and and they are really a strong if not the strongest one of the strongest unions in our nation uh not just our nation though canada the caribbean as well they proudly represent men and women who work in nearly every industry there is and a lot of people think usw just steel we've gone over that before and pre- and president conway is the union's most experienced contract negotiator and not just in steel in aluminum oil and other major industries where usw members work often directing bargaining during crises. Check them out online, usw.org. That's their website. Also online, follow them on Twitter and Instagram. Same handle there, at Steelworkers. More than a pleasure to have back on the program and the first time in this year, 2023. Happy belated New Year, President Conway, President Tom Conway, President of the USW. Thank you for joining us, President Conway. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, it's always good to be back, Leslie. Good to talk to you again. Uh, and, And likewise. You know, what we're talking about today, I think, is 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 so essential, not that just people are aware of it and, and, and know about it. But the conversation right now, when you hear about, oh, documents found here or there, what is the, you know, the question that, you know, people come up with is, you know, did this um, infringe upon our national security, right? Was national security put at risk? But a lot of times people forget that national security isn't just about documents in garages or Mar-a-Lago. National security requires sound trade policy, right? Um, Manufacturing in certain sectors, key sectors like steel, aluminum, um, they underpin national security. They provide vital resources for our military. They provide resources to help our nation, uh, you know, meeting just infrastructure as an example. So could you speak to some of these vital resources that manufacturing supplies with you know, with relationship to national security. Oh, look, the nation's national security isn't going to found be found in a stack of paper. It 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 stems out of what we make, and what we do for ourselves, and the ability to protect ourselves in what's become a ever more dangerous world, and the notion that you have to make that stuff. You can't expect to buy it from your enemies or buy it from somewhere else in the world when you need it. And if you don't make the fundamentals and the backbones of your economy, and and if you don't mine it and mill it, manufacture it, put labor and capital against it, and make those materials that are fundamental to your ability to have not just a thriving economy, but a safe economy, then you really are kidding yourself that 
you can rely on the rest of the world to take care of you. So, so sectors like steel and aluminum and glass and, and so many others are just crucial to what we have as a nation. And, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to protect that and having our own sovereignty over it, over it and our own control over those things. And, and I think America inherently understands that. And, and we've gone through an era where, you know, we, well, you can globalize everything and buy it wherever you want to. And it's just not, it just doesn't make sense. I think the pandemic taught us that in large way about our medical equipment and our needs there. And slowly the country's beginning to understand that you can't leave yourself defenseless and in that sort of position going forward. So, you know, what you make is really the, the backbone of what you are. And what made America a powerhouse was our ability to do that and our ability to stand up an industry when we needed to. Absolutely. Talk to me about Section 232s. I know that since 2018, at least, they've been an essential part of this. For people that aren't familiar with Section 232s are, or for those that are familiar with them but aren't aware how essential a part of all of this they are and why. Uh, uh, Section 232 is a section of the trade laws that give the president of the United States the ability to to put a tariff or to borrow products from coming into the country if if it's deemed that that product is essential to the national security. So you think of national security and and it's about making ships or making tanks, but that's not really what it comes down to. And, and some portion of our economy goes into those sorts of weaponry, but, but our national security is dependent upon our electrical grid. It's dependent upon our water systems. It's dependent upon, as we saw two weeks ago, a little computer glitch shut down our airlines for a whole day and a half over, over a corrupted file. Those mm-hmm. things have to do with our national security. So 232 gives the administration the ability to declare something a national security asset or industry and provide a protection against it, either through a tariff or a quota or completely banning that from coming into the country. And, and that's been used. The Trump administration used it um, somewhat unwieldingly, but it it was used and, and the Biden administration has continued it and has kept it strong and has made it modification where there's been, you know, some areas where um, we've had more friendly nations, the EU, the UK, uh, but in others like China and, mm. and other nations around the world where, where we don't have a trusting relationship, then we've used that, that as the ability to keep that material out of the country and, and to begin to make it here ourselves. And I think it's a wise use of the nation's trade laws. Well, when when we're faced with global overcapacity and, you know, driven largely like, you know, you had mentioned China and, and largely driven by their unfair trade practices, those 232 relief measures 
you know, we already we see the proof in the pudding. I mean, they worked. They they continue to work and they worked and continue to work, you know, as intended. Right. So let's break right. it down a little bit. Um, in steel, what did the 232 relief measures do um, and what were they intended to do uh, specifically? You know, for, for example, uh, you know, regarding industry conditions and things like that. Well, if, if you think about the steel industry, there's no reason in the world that the, that the steel industry or the aluminum industry in the United States should be closing facilities and imports growing into that market. And so the country needs to say to itself, well, what is the level of operation that we ought to have here before someone else can come into the market? And look, America's trade and our trading policies go back to the days of the Revolutionary War. We've always been a nation that traded. And that makes sense. That's proper. But there comes a point where, first of all, you take care of yourselves. And then you see where the balance should come from. So in steel, we tried to set a benchmark that said our industry ought to be running at 80% before someone else can come in here and undercut it and force the closure of mills and force the shutdown of jobs in the U.S. and harm U.S. communities and ship right into those communities. And so... um, And that became sort of the basis for those 232s. And we still work hard at adhering to that, to making sure that we can keep our industry running at at a sustained level. And it then spurs investment and it spurs companies to continue to reinvest. They have the certainty of a market. They know that something's going to be there. They don't have to run offshore. And you can incent them to build here domestically and provide jobs and a future in a community and have good thriving businesses and good unionized jobs. So um, it it really is sort of common sense, but you know, you put it in the hands of a bunch of economists and all of a sudden they dream up jargon and words, but people inherently know it's just a lot of foolishness. You know, you're chasing a product where labor is exploited. The environment is ignored. And they can make it cheaper. And if all you're ever going to worry about is price point, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Someone will Ab- always work cheaper. Absolutely, President Conway. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with President Conway, president of the United Steel Workers, the USW. Please check out their website. They do a lot more than just steel, USW.org. On Twitter and Instagram, follow them there, at Steelworkers. We'll continue talking about national security and not just steel, infrastructure, manufacturing, more after this. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers, the USW. Check out their website, USW.org, on Twitter and Instagram. Follow them there at Steelworkers. President Conway, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, with mm-hmm. regard to national security and the relationship that manufacturing has with national security in this country, Um, I want to talk about a recent ruling, and this is a ruling by the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Um, There are many out there that feel it was not only deeply flawed, 
um, but also uh, dangerous. Could you talk to us about this ruling by the WTO? Yeah, look, as part of the effort to um, do all the globalization and, and frankly, much of the deindustrialization that took place, a World Trade Organization was formed, in the for, and, the, and in the formation of it, as countries joined, they agreed to join a panel that would settle disputes and, and where quarrels would arise between countries. And these panels have sort of just kind of taken off and heading in the wrong direction. And so when the, when the administrations here put the 232s in place, a bunch of countries complained and went to the WTO and said, the United States has no right to bar us from their market. And they can't use this national defense argument. And the WTO needs to knock that rule down. And this panel of three judges, academics, lawyers, uh, I mean, actually, they don't even have to reveal who they are. They decided that the, that the United States was in violation of their rules and that we had to dismantle the 232s. That is way out of line. I mean, any nation and any other nation out there has a right to decide their own sovereignty issues, what their own national security issues are. And some anonymous panel somewhere to allow that to happen is just foolish. So this WTO ruling is way out of line, way beyond the parameters of whatever was contemplated by by the WTO and the original rules of it. And frankly, the U.S., I think rightfully, is going to ignore it and continue to do what it's doing. But it, it highlights the danger of sort of entering into an agreement that can be so badly misused and and sort of turned against you. And so the, the United States needs to take really a good hard look at its current trade arrangements, how, how they actually operate, whether or not you're turning over your own autonomy into the hands of some other organization, largely represented not in your interests. And so when we talk about trade reform, and the need to revamp America's trade laws and the way that we do business with the rest of the world, this sort of highlights the problem that the WTO and these panels have kind of run amok. And, and countries who have joined the WTO, China, for example, said they wanted to be a member of the WTO, but along the way, ignore what they want to and are, you know, very predatory and, decide they're going to target industries in the U.S. And, um, and so you, you just sort of need to take stock of where you stand and whether or not you need to continue in that kind of relationship. And, and we've been urging administrations for a long time that you have to take a real look at this mm-hmm. and take a step back and, and make sure that you're protecting yourself and your own industry and, and the work, workers in your nation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the WTO has no standing to interfere with national security. So this is clearly uh, beyond overreach, right? Well, look, what it can do, they can't make you undo your 
your law. But what it, they can then is open up the rest of the world to say, okay, you can form a, you can put a tariff against U.S. products. You can retaliate against them. And so it can open up a whole period of retaliation that's unnecessary and, and really can impede trade when, when they really stepped into an arena that they had no right to be in. So, um, look, I guess if it, if it brings that sort of behavior from other nations and they decide they're going to retaliate and not accept U.S. goods, uh, that begins the tension of having you know, widespread trade battles. But sometimes you got to have that sort of battle or the threat of a battle in order to protect yourself. And, and so while, while countries do a lot of saber rattling and say, well, you know, we're not, um, we're not going to accept us goods. People want access to the U S market. It's, it's one of the, it's the largest market in the world, the most affluent and our nation, regardless of what people think of it at times, it is the place where folks want to do business and can trust it to do business. And so, you know, there's a lot here that, that the world wants to be part of. And, and I don't think we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater to allow that to go on. No, that's a very good point. When you talk about being a part of, um, should China have been allowed to join the WTO? I mean, I know it happened more than 20 years ago, but um, the Chinese Communist Party leverages its position. China continues its predatory practices. Why is the WTO uh, on board China, with this, and why have they been for two decades? China is what's called a non-market economy. I mean, it doesn't run by normal market rules. It's governed and controlled by a Communist Party who sets the rules of the economy, who certainly isn't run by any sort of democratic practice. And, and they have an ability to do whatever they want at any time. And so they'll target industries and target industries here in the U.S. and make a five-year plan about how they're going to take over an industry here, undercut it in pricing, dump in products until they're able to sort of buy away all the customers. And then they're going to be in charge of it. And that pattern of conduct by the, by the CCP, by the Communist Party of China, it, it's, it's shown itself over and over and over. And if an American company wants to do business in China, they're going to have to go over there and do what they call a technology transfer. So if you had blueprints for something you wanted to manufacture in China, you're going to turn those blueprints over. They're going to translate them into Mandarin. And in a few years, they're going to be making that product. And so you might get into China's market for a year or two before they're making it on their own under the control of the state. And American business has had the wool pulled over its eyes multiple times on this. This is not a secret to anyone. And so allowing them into the WTO on the same basis as anyone else when they are officially a non-market economy is just a foolish approach to things and, and should uh, never have happened the way it did. Absolutely. We're going to take another break. We'll be back with President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers. Please check out their website, usw.org. 
Go to Twitter and Instagram. Follow them there at Steelworkers. We'll continue to talk about national security manufacturing and the relationship between those two, President Conway, right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Happy Friday. And we're happy to have with us President Tom Conway. President Conway is president of the United Steelworkers, 1.2 million members and retirees strong here in the U.S., Canada, and the Caribbean. Go to their website, www.usw.org, to find out more. And also follow them on Instagram and Twitter. Also more information at Steelworkers. Uh, President Conway, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We are talking about national security uh, we're talking about how critical trade is to that national security. And I don't think we could have that conversation without talking about another aspect of, you know, uh, national security. Um, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that reinforces just how critical trade is uh, to national security. Uh, could you talk to us about that? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, aluminum, you know, as, you know, a starting point or a jumping point uh, with this discussion. Yeah. Well, right now, Russia had traditionally been a big exporter of aluminum around the world, and particularly into the United States. And unfortunately, there is still a significant amount of Russian aluminum coming into the United States. And this aluminum, and one of out of the biggest Russian aluminum companies, it, it, its earnings repatriate back into the Putin war chest. And so... By buying Russian aluminum here in the United States, you're essentially handing dollars to the Putin regime to underwrite his war effort in the Ukraine. And if you're going to sanction Russia, then you need to get serious about it. And so the amount of Russian aluminum coming to the U.S. is, is frankly been sort of stunning. And we've been talking a lot to the administration in the last um month and a half or two months or so and and we're and i believe making progress on that but at the same time the u.s has gone from a time having maybe 10 11 aluminum smelters in the country to operating to down to three and a half four and some are on crippled business and and one closed in kentucky here about six months ago and it was the last smelter in the U.S. that made what's called high-purity aluminum for military applications. So right now, the U.S. doesn't have the capability for making high-purity aluminum that goes into the F-35, that goes into military applications, that go into a bunch of other aerospace applications. And it's been coming out of Russia. Now, it's really unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, first you're going to have to make a plan for being able to make that material here again and shut down the Russian materials. And so it, it sort of demonstrates that without kind of an industrial policy and a thoughtfulness that the way the nation allows itself to run and allows its businesses to run and the decisions that it makes and to make sure that they they, you know, they, they, there was a time when they took an, an eye and they watched towards antitrust issues and make sure that they weren't 
owning all the sources of competition, but really didn't pay any attention at all to whether or not business practices were working against the national interests of the nation as, as a nation as a whole. And look, we have a right to do that. The president has at his authority the Defense Production Act. Uh, we, we have the ability to do it, and we need to begin to use it. So, you know, here we find ourselves on short supply of aluminum, and not just aluminum, titanium is another example. In order to make titanium, which is so essential going into the use of military applications in medical equipment, yep. in civilian applications, but America doesn't make a product called titanium sponge, which is the foundation of making the metal titanium. And we don't make it here anymore. So those sorts of things, along with fiber optics, and this list goes on and on, whether it's going to be offshore wind, whether it's going to be solar panels, America needs to be making that. And we're at a turning point where we've made finally and rightfully some significant investments in an in infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and a Chips and Science Bill. And America is investing both in climate and in jobs. And climate has a lot to do with trade. So if you're going to do clean up your climate and clean up your carbon, you need to do it with equipment that you build here. If you're just going to bring mm -hmm. it offshore from a place that it's made dirty, you're not doing much for the environment and you're not doing much with your taxpayer dollars. So there needs to be a coherent strategy about how we're going to deploy that money. And, and I think this administration's working hard at doing that. No, I would agree. Um, energy prices caused by this war between Russia and Ukraine, um, they've hurt European aluminum producers, right? Not just the United States. Does that further leave markets open to those exports from Russia? Well, look, Germany and some of the other places were dependent upon Russian oil, um, Russian energy that came out of there, Ukraine in the way of food and grain and caused the food shortage. Um, there were a lot of materials that shipped out of those regions. And so they have caused a shortage. And, you know, there's, that's what price spikes have been. And we've seen that in energy prices here as well. Um, I believe it levels out over time, and I think you need to bring alternative sources on. And I think people are working quickly at trying to figure out a way to do that. But it's going to take a little time, and there'll be yeah. some struggles in the meantime. But but look, energy prices will level out, and, and um, you know you can't control the behavior of of that nation and what they're doing without getting some economic pressure brought against it. And it's got to be real and significant. Uh, no, absolutely. Looking forward. And, and when, you know, you look at domestic production, when you look at sound trade policy, um, uh, you know, there's um, another essential aspect of our national security and that's meeting our energy needs. But President Conway, let me ask you this. There is tremendous potential, and you've told me this and others at the USW and other unions, in areas like offshore wind. Uh, the Biden administration, they're working to build our domestic industry. They're working to secure the supply chain 
uh, in this industry that will need to be successful. We already know Europe has a significant lead over us there. China's ramping up its production. Is there a concern with U.S. president of the USW and among union, so not just the USW, but across the board, with Republicans having taken over the House and with their attitude toward um, you know, renewable energy sources and alternative energy sources? Look, I think we, you know, our union also represents oil workers in refineries across the country. And so while we understand all the concerns about carbon and making sure that the, the atmosphere is clean and that there's the right kind of carbon capture sequestration programs put in place and there is equipment for that, we understand too that there's a transition going on in the world. And, but we think it can happen all at the same time and it doesn't have to come at the expense of each other and so while we're building up a world that's leading towards electrification for example in the in the uh, vehicle fleet you're going to need the materials you're going to need in order to meet that demand in in copper in lithium in nickel and in lightweighting is tremendous and the country needs to be able to respond to that and so this is a long-term project that we're on and this is really sort of a a fundamental change in the way we think about things and energy needs will change but they're not all going to change overnight there's still going to be a need for fossil fuels as clean as possible that can be made and there's going to be a need for solar but a lot of these countries are ahead of us and we've got to do a lot of catching up. And I think we're working at it as quickly as we can. And, and, you know, at the same time, preserving the good jobs that are out there. And, you know, people talk about a just transition. I don't, you know, it's sort of a foolish notion that you're going to take someone who's worked at a refinery for $40 an hour and put them in a job at a solar plant making 14, and they're going to be happy about that. That's not the kind of transition America has to make. And you can't do this on a low wage strategy. So we've got to make sure that the jobs we're preserving or and creating are paying the right kind of livable family sustaining wages that need to come along with these changes. But that's an, that's an excellent, there's a lot on our horizon. Yeah, excellent point. And and something that people do bring up as a concern, you know, exactly what you mentioned, like, you know, why do I leave this established industry for something newer if I'm going to take a pay cut, you know, when it's uncertain. We'll be back with President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers. Check them out online. Check out their website, USW.org. On Twitter and Instagram, follow them at Steelworkers. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. back. Happy Friday. Welcome or welcome back. Talking to President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers Union. And I want you to check out their website, find out all that they do. It's a lot more than steel, usw.org. And Twitter and Instagram, their handles are is at Steelworkers. Follow them there, at Steelworkers on Twitter and Instagram. We're talking about national security with relationship 
uh, to manufacturing. And there's a huge correlation and why it's so necessary. And we're having this conversation because I, I don't think enough people are aware of it. Uh, President Conway, again, thank you for holding and, and welcome back. Um, the previous administration, when Donald Trump was president, um, they pretty much made it clear that we can't exist in a vacuum uh, when it comes to trade. Can you speak to us about that? Because it would seem that the former administration and this administration, at least are in agreement on that, right? So this isn't this isn't necessarily Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. You know, this is something where most Americans and most of our legislators, our elected officials are on the same page, correct? Yeah, I think for the most part, that's true. I think this, um, you know, as I think I was saying earlier, this, there's been a bit of a sea change, even amongst the economists who touted a global economy just 15 and 20 years ago, have begun to see that, you know, it didn't make much sense and it, and it actually harmed countries. And the promises that were made weren't delivered. The promises under the original NAFTA, the promises of, of the WTO um, brought harm about and brought, brought particular harm to the United States. We lost 60,000 factories and 6 million jobs. And, um, and so I think any politician who wants to be a national leader in this country, to think that you can't um, come together and come up with coherent policies about how to move forward, particularly with regards to um, countries like China and some of the rest of Asia and some of the predatory practices that are out there that are designed to take your markets and do harm to your nation. Um, you, there's no reason in the world that this is, has to be a partisan issue. And so I think the Trump administration, the former USTR, Bob Lighthizer, and the current administration with the Department of Commerce and the USTR, Catherine Tai and Gina Raimondo, I, I think they work together and, and, um, and fit together in a lot of ways. And I think we're, we're finally beginning to have a discussion and a conversation in the United States about the need to take care of ourselves first and how we're going to do that. And so, you know, as you see this administration moving forward with all this investment that is going into the country and, and it will take a while as it, it begins to implement and come online, there's a Buy American component yeah. to so much of it, to transportation, to energy, to manufacturing, to, to new energy and clean energy, and, and, and even within the auto industry and the restructuring of the auto industry, um, and the way that the internal combustion engine is deployed. So I think those are healthy signs and those are signs of administrations and, and politicians who are beginning to understand, you know, the future of this country depends on the country's ability to make things and to, and to make a product and bring it to a market and supply the rest of the world with American made quality products that we always have done and um and and you see it now when, with this administration has an effort underway called the indo-pacific economic framework and where they're trying to build a coalition of countries who can sort of stand against the economic 
um, might and, and predatory practice of, of China and form the right kind of partnership together to move forward without it being a trade agreement that transfers um, product across each other's line and to just get the right kind of um, coalition and pillars in place and work together on clean energy and on trade. And um, look, you know, you don't, you can't keep foreign policy and trade completely separate so they have nothing to do with each other. They are separate issues and largely get dealt with differently. But it'd be naive to think that in a world where foreign policy is so fraught with peril, trade doesn't enter into the discussions. But I think it can be done fairly and the right way. And you build willing partners working together in the kind of coalitions that we're seeing coming together right now around support of the Ukraine. And, and I think this administration in America needs to lead those efforts. So I'm, I'm actually sort of feel positive about the way things are going right now and, and that we're going to build the right kind of jobs and good jobs for, for American workforce and train a workforce up to meet those needs. And um, moving forward, I think five or 10 years from now, people are going to see that this was you know, very successful, made a lot of sense, and has positioned the country much better off than we would have been otherwise. I'm glad that you mentioned, because you read my mind, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework uh, from this administration, um, because I think a lot of times when people talk about us coordinating with trusted partners in trade, we think about the EU, we think about the UK, you know, we certainly think about countries in the EU like Germany, France, you know, that as an example. Um, And, you know, a lot of people have spoken about you as well, uh, that this administration's Indo-Pacific Economic Framework contains important priorities that include strong labor, environmental standards. Um, and, it, you know, it is essential that an agreement or any agreement, but an agreement like this especially adheres to work-centered values. Uh, is it also essential that the United States be sure and be picky about the partners they select because these partners need to be serious about reali- realizing um, these goals um, as well going forward? Well, look, they should learn something from the last time they picked a partner in China yep. who just sort of got in the club and then burned the place down. So, you know, if you're going to go around and build a coalition out of 12, 13, 14 nations, you don't pick a nation who's got terrible labor standards or child labor standards or is crushing unionized workforces or exhausting their economy and their environment just to make a product and get it to a market. And so they're, you know, the nation's going to need to be discerning who they're going to do business with. But, you know, that strikes me as sort of common sense. And, um, you know, like everybody's not going to be on the same playing field, the same level, and, and there'll be some leveling up that needs to take place. But if you have a, a regime that's inherently um, untrustworthy, then, then don't go do a deal with them. And um, so I think that's sort of the overall guide here is that when you're going to pick partners here, um, pick one who you can trust and do business with and and that you have, you know, mutual issues you can move forward together on. 
Yeah, because, you know, we we definitely want to reduce how much we're importing. We want to have more made in America products, but we have to have trade partners because we certainly want to export uh, more products and we, you know, want to offset that deficit. Um, our, you know, you had mentioned that, you know, you're feeling confident, you're feeling good, um, you know, when it comes to all of this moving forward. Um, do you think that we're going to see consumers have a, a larger demand for made in America products and that will, you know, force the hands of some of these larger manufacturers and also this legislation, you know, where we have to have a certain percentage of uh, these, uh, you know, vital elements like aluminum and steel. Uh, they have to be domestic as opposed to in the past when, you know, we would, you know, some people would buy the cheaper steel from China, as an example. Look, sometimes I think you have to have a rule in place, legislation, a regulation, in order to get people to pay attention and do what they're supposed to. And, and you know, we've come through a generation of sort of big box era, and people have gotten this appetite that they can get everything cheap. But the truth is, if you keep buying stuff as cheap as you can find it, it eventually puts you out of work. And then you can't afford any of it. So mm. you maybe got to pay a few extra pennies for something in order to make it here. But if that's got your community thriving, if it's providing other jobs in your region and in your neighborhood, those are investments and they shouldn't be seen as necessarily a cost. And it's the cost of living in a country that has the promise of America, that people do have the ability to have decent lives here and they're not living in abject poverty and they're not living like some other places around the world. And so, um, look, I think it doesn't mean that prices are going to go crazy. I think the inflation that's going on right now is beginning to subside. A lot of it had to do with the pandemic. A lot of it had to do with um, understanding that we didn't have products here and, and we're getting fleeced a little bit by not making our own and a built-up um, consumer sat at, at home for 18 months or two years before being able to spend and now they're out and they've been doing some spending. But I think America's consumers are smart and understand the nature of the markets and, and what pricing looks like and don't necessarily have to chase the cheapest price. And I think technology here, manufacturing um, methods, the way we can do things, we can make things um, pretty competitive in this country and that makes the country thrive. And, and you don't have to take something that's made in a dirty way, right. exploited way, or made by children somewhere else around the world or made by slave labor or, or uh, uh, when you look at, at the work that was done to put the FIFA um, World Cup organization together and the exploitive nature that was done there, that, that doesn't need to be going on. And, and America shouldn't be a part of that. Absolutely. Very well said. President Conway, the hour just flew by. I always enjoy having you on. I learned something. I know our listeners and viewers do as well. President Tom Conway, president of the United Steelworkers. Once again, check out their website, usw.org. On Twitter, follow them at Steelworkers. On Instagram, follow them at Steelworkers as well. 
I'm Leslie Marshall. Our executive producer is Mark Maldi. We hope you have a wonderful and a safe weekend. And we look forward to speaking with you and with our guests next week.